Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner, Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to the Venture Stories by Village Global Podcast. I'm joined here today with Tony Shang of Decentraland and Joey Krug of Augur. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. We are talking on July 7th. Augur launch is what, Joey? July 9th? Yep. Awesome. It's been a long road for you guys, a few years. Tell us a bit about the philosophy behind Augur and a little bit about its history, formation of the company and team. Sure. So, I mean, the the philosophy behind it is basically, if you look at Bitcoin, it kind of became frustrated with the idea that it basically just become a digital version of gold and wasn't really being used for anything beyond people just kind of speculating on it. And so the idea behind Augur is basically, um, you know, what if you actually could disrupt finance kind of like behind the original kind of ethos of this tech. And so if you look at the financial system today, there's basically three problems with it. One is that it's not really global. So if you're trading, say, Apple stock, the odds that someone from China is on the other side of that trade is, is basically zero. The other problem is that it's pretty expensive, depending on what you're trading. Um, there's a great paper that's called like the cost of financial intermediation. And it talks about how <clears throat> the fees for financial transactions over the past 30, 40 years have actually gone up compared to the past. And then the last kind of piece or problem that it aims to solve is creating new financial markets today is very, very difficult. Um, it's, it's kind of prohibited to very wealthy and, and primarily institutions, and it costs you many millions of dollars to do it. And so the idea, idea behind Augur is to create a platform where people can pretty cheaply create new financial markets. Cool. How do you guys get started from then till now? Yeah, so we, we started working on it in late 2014. You know, back then we were, we looked at building on Bitcoin and ended up basically abandoning that because the smart contract functionality of Bitcoin just really wasn't, it's basically non-existent. And then so we, we started working with Ethereum started writing it in this language, programming language called Serpent, which is kind of a, a language that no one uses anymore. And in 2015, uh, we raised some money with a crowdfunding campaign, raised about $5 million in Bitcoin and Ether. And then in 2016, released a beta version. 2017, we actually had to rewrite the entire code base because we found a bunch of vulnerabilities in this programming language, uh, Serpent. And so we rewrote it into a different language called Solidity. You know, after, after that, primarily just iterating on the UI until launch, which happens in a couple of days. That's super exciting. You mentioned the one of the driving philosophies around Augur is to make it easier and cheaper for really anybody to create a market. Can you help make that a bit more tangible? Because is it the, the, the other market that you mentioned was a US trader trading with somebody in China trading Apple stock, but that's not really the focus of Augur, is it? Yeah, so Augur itself, you know, we don't, we don't really have a specific you know, focus for what people will use it for. Uh, it's, it's really designed to be kind of a generic platform. And on it, you can create three different types of markets. So you can create ones that are yes or no markets. So, you know, will this event happen or not? Uh, you can create ones that are what we call scalar markets. That's one where it has like a range of values. So that could be like how many inches of rain, uh, you know, fell in this certain town. Maybe a farmer uses that for, you know, crop or flood insurance. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the third type is categorical markets where you can create a market that has multiple different outcomes. An example of that would be, you know, a presidential election or a, or a horse race. 
Gotcha. And and in general, the the category for these types of markets are called prediction markets, right? Could you could you maybe explain what that is and why that's important? Sure. So the reason they're called prediction markets is they're typically on you know events, so specific events. And the reason they're useful is you can use them to get you know accurate forecasts or pricing for the likelihood that those events will happen. So to make that a bit more concrete, you know. One example of it would be, you know, in the early 2000s, DARPA tried to create a prediction market on geopolitical events. So, for instance, would this certain regime be overthrown? You know, how long will this person be in power? You know, will the elections in a certain country actually happen this year? Things like that. And people basically trade on it back and forth. So it's very similar. It's basically a financial market where people are trading back and forth. And whatever the price is, is convertible into a prediction. So on the example for, for a dictator one, you know, you can say, will, you know, X dictator allow elections to happen in their country this year or not? And, you know, the probability is basically whether the election will get canceled or not. And so if the price for that for yes is basically like 10 cents a share, that means that the market thinks there's a 10% chance that elections will actually happen. So that's probably, you know, some, some sort of totalitarian regime. And you can use these sorts of markets for, for essentially, you know, anything. The idea for prediction markets was invented in the in the early you know 40s and 50s and 60s by a few economists. One was um, Frederick Hayek, who published this paper called "The Use of Knowledge in Society" about how prices are really just information. And then the other two were these two economists named Arrow and Debro, who won the Nobel Prize for this idea called complete markets. And the idea behind that's pretty straightforward. It's just in a nutshell, they basically said if you could have financial markets on anything people would be able to hedge against any risk or speculate on any risk they wanted. And that would make the economy more efficient, was their idea. You've mentioned the idea that, you know, speculation sort of get a bad, get, gets a bad rep when people, you know, people like to dismiss crypto right now and say it's all about speculation. But you actually talk about how important speculation is. Can, can you elucidate that a little bit? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So I think, I think if you think about, you know, speculation, everyone has this very negative view towards it. And speculation spans the spectrum all the way from, you know, rolling the dice in Vegas all the way to investing in your 401k or your IRA. And most people don't think of 401ks or IRAs as, as speculation, but inherently that's what they are under the surface. Even if you just buy an S&P index fund, you're still taking a position on the market. Your position there is basically saying that you don't think you can beat it, so you're just going to roll with it. But, but at the end of the day, I think speculation is what kind of drives the underlying current behind society and drives our economy. Everything of all speculation whether it's buying something at the grocery store, you know, buying a new MacBook, or you know, actually trading a real financial contract, you know, at the end of the day, every single point along that that spectrum has a price associated with it. And those prices don't just appear out of thin air; they come from people who are speculators, and those speculators provide liquidity. Another example of this is you look at like you know commodities futures on like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. There, you have farmers who want to be able to hedge against crop risk or who want to be able to you know, hedge against the risk that the price of a hog drops over the next year. And they can speculate on that. And there's people on Wall Street who are just trading back and forth on it, providing liquidity for those people. But people like to think of speculation as being very zero sum, but it's not actually zero sum because there's positive externalities. So like on the example of a, a futures contract, yes, it, yes, it's zero sum in the sense that like there was no new money created out of thin air, but it's not zero sum in the sense that there are positive externalities. A farmer can lock in the price for his, for his cattle. Uh, ahead of time, and you know the person on Wall Street benefits because they're they're able to provide liquidity for that. Are there unproductive kinds of speculation or bad kinds of speculation in your mind? 
or all of it is. So there definitely are, there definitely are unproductive kinds of speculation. Like for instance, you know, if you, if you do a random dice roll and you're just betting on a dice roll, that's not really productive. It doesn't really have any positive externalities either. So there's some that are like that. But as soon as you move to, to anything remotely resembling a financial market, I think you start to have positive externalities start to appear. What are some examples of positive externalities that you're excited about with Augur? Yeah, so some of them I'm excited about are, if you look at you know financial markets in general, a lot of them don't exist but should. So an example of this is you know insurance markets for people in developing countries. A lot of farmers in developing countries can't buy things like crop insurance because it doesn't exist or because it's not worth it for a large insurance provider to you know make markets on that because the, the farmers aren't big enough clients. They'd rather stick to you know large countries like the US, uh, Russia, China, Canada, etc. So one example that's kind of interesting there is someone can go create a market on Augur for you know 20 bucks and then start offering crop insurance for all these tiny little locations all across the globe. And you know farmers will actually be able to hedge their risk on that sort of stuff. Uh, so that's one example of a, of a sort of you know positive thing that, that you could do using Augur. The other one I think is just if you look at, you know, our, and this one's kind of harder to foresee effects of, but if you look at, you know, how we look at forecasting the future today, it's not very accurate. We can get decently accurate weather forecasts and, and a few other things like that. But beyond that, like, it's really hard to accurately forecast things. Things like political events are, are notoriously bad at being predicted, especially recently. And so I think if you, you know, basically financialize that, you'll get more accurate prices and accurate predictions. And the reason is just really simple. It's just that if you think that the price is wrong, you stand to make money by correcting it. The concept of prediction markets, as you as you mentioned, have been around for quite a long time now, decades. Just had Robin Hansen on the podcast, and he, he's slightly dubious of of sort of why things are different now. So I guess what's your response to him in terms of you know why decentralization is is critical to prediction markets work, working and why this time is different? Yeah. So if you look at the history of prediction markets, one they've been you know, horrendously expensive to, to start. Uh, and that assumes that they even got started in the first place. Look at the prediction market that DARPA tried to create in the early 2000s. It got shut down because one senator was mad at the person who ran it and, and decided to say a bunch of negative stuff about it. It was pretty misleading. And so the funding got cut. So that's, you know, even from within the government, it's hard to, to get one of these things off the ground. If you're creating one that's more consumer focused, you know, like Intrade, Intrade eventually got shut down. For ones that are still live in production today, you have ones like Predicted, the Iowa Electronic Markets, things like Betfair. Um, the problems with those are Betfair is basically just sports betting. There's a few other things on there, but it's mostly just sports betting. And the fees are really high. They're 5 to 10% of your profits. And then on the political ones, they're really just on US presidential elections. And so, um, you know, to say kind of, well, what's different this time? Well, one, they're not just going to be on sports and they're not just going to be on, you know, political elections. So I think that's a huge thing. Two, people are going to be able to create their own markets pretty cheaply, which I also think is another another huge innovation. So I guess the, the big difference is you can kind of think of it like uh, if you look at the how books were made before the printing press. So before the printing press took a book, you'd have a monk or someone or a scribe basically copy it. And to disseminate a book, you'd have to have a bunch of different scribes copy the book over and over and over again to make multiple copies. And they're extraordinarily expensive and they're kind of one-off things. Uh, you're very rich if you could have a book before the printing press. Post-printing press, it's very easy to disseminate a book. And then, you know, with the internet, it became even easier to disseminate information. And so if you look at financial markets, they're kind of in the stage pre-printing press right now. To trade a new one is is extraordinarily difficult. 
And I think that, you know, with, with some stuff like Augur, we'll see them kind of enter the post printing press age. And then, you know, once this tech actually scales, maybe, you know, five to 10 years from now, we'll see kind of proliferation of finance similar to what we saw with the internet and information. Is the, is the use of blockchain one of the reasons that the cost is so much lower this time? Or is it something else? Is that orthogonal or direct? That's pretty related. So if, if you look at the cost of operating markets, you know, you have to do things like escrow funds, process trades, you know, store customer money, pay out uh, markets after they resolve. You have to have someone resolve the markets. You have to do a bunch of complicated stuff manually when you're creating the market. And so when you use blockchain tech, all that stuff that I just listed is all programmatic and it's all systematic. So it's, you can do it all with, you know, APIs or, or calling functions on Ethereum smart contracts. The other, other reason it's very expensive today and very time consuming is there's a lot of legal overhead associated with operating those individual roles. If you look at something like Augur, the main kind of operator role associated with it is if you create a prediction market, you know, you could be, you could be viewed as kind of operating something in that sense. But that said, I think your regulatory burden would be lower because of the fact that you're not processing trades, you're not escrowing funds, you're not doing all this other stuff that operators do. The only thing you're actually doing is creating the market in the first place. Uh, another of Robin's critiques are that you know, in order for prediction markets to work, there needs to be you know demand for them. And he thinks while there well, there's demand for things like betting on sports outcomes or betting on presidential elections, there isn't as much demand for say things like. You know, health insurance premiums or, or a lot of things that would actually be very, very helpful. The other th- uh, critique is that prediction markets, while enormously valuable, may have sort of pl- certain political costs that might prevent people from wanting to say vote on, you know, implement them as it relates to hiring and firing CEOs or, you know, product deadlines or uh, things that might make certain people in, in their organization look bad. How, how would you respond to, to both of those critiques? Yeah. So I think on the, on the health insurance side of things, you know, I think that's, that's a use case that you know, if it ever happens, it'll be a really long time from now. I don't, I don't think it's a very good use case for, for prediction markets, particularly just because healthcare is, is so broken that it's really hard space to enter. And then on the, on the, you know, using them as kind of decision markets to make decisions. I, I think again, that's another use case that's probably farther off because people want to, for one, there's a decent amount of evidence that they do work well today and it's still not really enough to convince people to use them. And then two, you know, there's kind of, yeah, there are political costs to to using them and implementing them in, in an organization. Meaning that you know, if I think the way to phrase this, if you know the prediction market says do X and you you know don't do it, and then it turns out the market was right, that makes you look pretty bad as an executive. So mm-hmm. I th- and those aren't really use cases that I'm that that excited about. Cause I think they're very unlikely to be implemented. More use cases that I'm more excited about are more really on the on the financial side of things. I really think that you know the the way to think about Prediction markets is not just, you know, as using them to, to make decisions, but also just viewing them as kind of generalized, generalized derivatives contracts. And in that sense, the, the kind of market of what you can do with them opens up a lot wider. Give us some more examples about, let, let's say, you know, it launches ninth. Like what will we be able to do pretty soon? Like what are some, you know, applications of prediction markets that, that might be non obvious or that you're really excited about? Yeah. So, you know, for other applications of prediction markets. You know, I, th- I really do think that the lowest thing you treat ones are, are financial ones. I think people will do sports stuff on them just because it's so much, so much cheaper. But even give some um, examples of financial ones that, that. Yeah. So on that side of things, I, I think like, you know, today, if, if you want to enter any sort of custom agreement with someone, it's like, say you want to create a, a return swap with someone. 
where you know you're basically swapping cash flows between two assets or <laughs> something like a contract for difference where you know if if a certain asset goes up five dollars, I get five dollars from you, and if it goes down five dollars, you get five dollars and you and you do that you know for for the history of how long that contract's operating. Those sorts of things I think are really interesting use cases that today, if you want to enter into one of those sorts of contracts, they're not really they're all kind of bespoke is I guess the word to use. So whenever someone wants to create one of those, you, you know, as a bank or a financial institution, you have to create this, you know, you know, multi-hundred page long contract, and then you enter into it with a counterparty, and they're also not really exchange traded. And so I think what's what's neat about the financial side of this stuff on blockchains is you can create a new custom financial contract and have it basically be, be exchange traded in the sense that it's trading on the blockchain all in a matter of minutes, whereas in the existing system, it takes you, you know, days to weeks and, you know, 50 to 100 pages, pages customizing stuff in, in legal fees. A lot of the reason for that is because most financial contracts don't actually have you post collateral up front, or uh, if they do, it's a pretty small margin requirement. It's so a one kind of either positive or negative, depending on how you view it, is markets on stuff like Augur or, or anything on Ethereum really, for the most part, has to actually have the collateral posted up front. If you're someone who, you know, views the financial system kind of negatively post 2008, that's a very good thing. If you're a really, you know, active trader, maybe, maybe it's not as good as a thing. On a higher level, you mentioned three problems with the current financial system that you're trying to solve with Augur. Segregation, capital intensive, and cost, I guess, fees, which you already spoke to a little bit. Can you explain these problems a little bit and how Augur plans to solve them? Sure. So I think if you look at fees, you know, the, the main problem with fees is they decrease trading activity, they decrease liquidity, they make prices kind of less accurate. Uh, the reason is because, you know, say for instance that you think Horse X has a 51% chance of winning the race and he's currently priced at 50% and you want to crack him to 51, you want to buy, buy up that outcome. And if the trading fee is 1%, then you're not going to, you're not going to trade that and the price is going to stay inaccurate. So fees are an example of things that lead to market inefficiencies and, and cause problems because they discourage people from actually participating in trading. And fees aren't aren't necessarily as high in the financial side of things. On the finance side of things, fees are mostly high for storing your capital. So things like custody, which you can do on your own cryptocurrency. On the betting side of things, fees are just really high because it's primarily a handful of monopolies that control that industry. And so they can charge really high fees. Specifically, they're one of a handful of players in a given market. And then so, so Augur's approach to fees basically is not there's no one you know like entity that's taking a rake or taking a cut of the fees and that go through Augur, so it can afford to have the fees be very low. So if you look at um, the way fees in Augur work, whoever creates the market can charge a fee that goes just to them. Those fees should trend towards pretty close to zero because that will get competitive very quickly. The other fee goes to the people who resolve the market and report on it, and those fees are kind of algorithmic and basically depend on. A few variables depend on, you know, how much the, the market cap of the token behind Augur is worth and how much capital is in Augur at any given point in time. But I think those fees will be, you know, more in basis points as opposed to, as opposed to in percentages. So on the fee side of things, that's, that's kind of how we approach it. There's one caveat there though, which is that in the beginning, fees will be relatively high, not because of Augur itself, but because of Ethereum. Running a transaction on Ethereum isn't super cheap these days. So if you wanted to basically place a trade for $100, and the Ethereum transaction fee is $2, that's effectively a 2% fee. The one interesting thing here, though, is that if you wanted to place a trade for $200,000, the Ethereum transaction fee is still $2. That's something I think over time will, will go down. The other two things you asked about, 
were um, the other kind of two things that be two problems that didn't exist. So the second one is is liquidity, or more accurately, global liquidity. So financial markets today aren't very liquid, and the reason is just because there are a lot of capital controls globally. And so if you're a Chinese investor, it's very difficult to get your money out of China. It's also very difficult to open a bank account in the United States, which is, you know, in many cases, most brokers require you to have a U.S. bank account to trade in the U.S. markets. And so what's neat about uh, these platforms built on you know, things like Ethereum is that they're just a pseudonymous address. It doesn't really know who you are or where you're from. And it doesn't require you the ability to get access to Ether. But once you have it, then you can trade with people all over the world and share basically the same pool of liquidity. Um, and if you look at the stock market today, that's just not really how it works. If you're a foreign institution, you can you know typically get an account on foreign stock exchanges. If you're a foreign individual, it's very difficult. And in many cases, you can't even actually trade the, the same stock. For instance, a company in Canada may be listed in Canada. And then in America, you may trade this thing called an American depository receipt, which is where a bank basically owns shares of that company and then lists it as this thing called an ADR, and the liquidity is not shared. So for instance, what I mean by that is if you place an order to buy 10 shares of this company in the US, and someone in Canada places an order to sell 10 shares of it, you're not necessarily sharing the same liquidity pool. So those orders might not even get filled. And then the, and so the way Augur solves that is just by being on a, on a blockchain. And then the last piece is you know, enabling people to create their own markets. And you know, the main reason, the main way Augur solves that it's just by codifying everything. So everything is, is written in smart contracts. And the way the UI works is it asks you some questions, you input some answers, and then it creates a new smart contract on the fly, which basically has the parameters for whatever market you just created. And that's the thing that one, it does it does really kind of benefit a lot from using the blockchain, but it's not it's something that theoretically you could do in the regular world too. Uh, just no one's done it. I think for the reasons that, you know, it, it doesn't really make sense for you know, a bank like Goldman Sachs to create a product like that, because then the fees that they charge to create custom financial contracts would have to drop quite a bit if, you know, you could do it in a point-click interface. You've mentioned that some of the, you know, barriers to perhaps wide adoption for Augur are scalability, you know, you're building it on top of Ethereum, obviously, and the lack of a, of a stable coin. So I'm curious, how are you thinking about what success looks like for your launch, what what KPIs you're tracking, and, and what you're really trying to, to prove with it? Yeah. So, you know, I think what, what success looks like is, you know, having a launch where there's no critical vulnerability where a bunch of money gets stolen. I don't think it looks like, you know, having, you know, a hundred million dollars traded in Augur contracts. And the reason for that is, you know, a lot of the scalability issues, a lot of the lack of the stable coin issue. And you know, I think really the first thing we're, that we just want to see happen is have this battle tested in the wild, have people try to, you know, poke holes in it. And basically see a successful launch or, you know, if someone does find a way to attack it, quickly fix it and, and, uh, you know, release a new version. So, you know, I think if you look at the kind of future of Augur, we basically, you know, I, I hope that it has kind of slow but steady growth. And the reason is you don't want a system like this to grow too fast because then, um, you haven't had time to battle test its security. So for instance, if overnight there were $50 billion locked up in Augur contracts, It'd be really bad if they're a vulnerability discovered the next day. If there's, you know, 20,000 and then 500,000 and then a million and then 5 million and so on and so on and it grows gradually, it gives you more time to find vulnerabilities and lets the system kind of prove itself over time, which is what I would like to see happen. 
You guys have quite a, quite a complex set of smart contracts, and I know you've spent a lot of time trying to make sure that they're secure going through several security audits and more recently launching a, a kind of bug bounty program that has been really well received. Can you kind of talk about why security is so difficult for a project like yours and um, maybe what you've learned from going through the multi-phase process of trying to feel as confident as possible that it's rock solid before the launch? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, if you look at, if you look at uh, why this stuff is hard to do securely, you basically have mission critical code that's open source and accessible by anyone anywhere in the world uh, who can read it all and try to find vulnerabilities in it. So if you look at like what NASA does, they're writing, you know, code for, for rockets and space shuttles and things like that. And they sometimes have vulnerabilities which cause problems. And those vulnerabilities don't happen, usually anyway, don't happen because some malicious person was exploiting them. It is happening kind of out of chance or something goes wrong on a mission. And they still have problems in their code. Imagine if, if NASA's code base for everything, every rocket, every shuttle, et cetera, was all open source. And on top of that, anyone could try to submit commands to the shuttle and make function calls. That's kind of what you're <laughs> trying to secure against, right? And so you can imagine that, you know, if that were the case, NASA would probably would have had a lot more blown up rockets. And there's kind of, you know, both pros and cons of that. The, the cons of it are that much easier to find vulnerabilities. The pros of it are once it's been out in the wild for a period of, you know, a few years and has a good amount of capital in it, you can be reasonably confident it's secure because it has so many eyes on it. Um, an example of this is, you know, Bitcoin. Uh, if you look at Bitcoin itself from a code standpoint, it's very secure. And if it weren't, somebody would have, you know, stolen a bunch of Bitcoin by now by, you know, executing some vulnerability in Bitcoin core. But that hasn't really happened other than like one time in 2010, uh, very, very early on. What's the plan right now for if someone makes either a legal market or something that's deemed unethical? Yeah. So if you look at, you know, how Augur works and kind of the entity behind it, the, the Forecast Foundation, you know, what the Forecast Foundation does is it writes code for Augur and it, you know, contributes to the code base, but it doesn't really have any, it doesn't have any power to, you know, censor a given transaction or prevent something, some specific thing from happening. So what would happen in that scenario, you know, if somebody tried to do something unethical on it, is Augur has this you know system of reporters that do two things. One is they resolve the markets in the system. So you have a market on how many inches of rain fell in a certain location. It, the reporters report how many actually fell. The other thing they can do is report a market as unethical, which basically returns the capital to the people who traded in it. And so in a scenario where somebody creates some you know unethical market, it's basically up to the reporters to decide whether they want to allow that sort of content on Augur or not. Similar to how, you know, Ethereum miners could theoretically decide to censor a certain category of transactions that they wanted to. So far, they haven't done that yet, but it's theoretically possible. Yeah. You know, when you talked about stablecoins in the past, you've mentioned sort of four different scenarios for how you see stablecoins playing out. Des- describe those different scenarios and say which one you're, you think is most likely to occur. Yeah, let's see. So I don't remember what, uh, what Fori is talking about <laughs> then, but. You know, the way I think about them now is, you know, if you look at stablecoins in general, the kind of idea behind it is you have these assets that are very, very volatile, right? And so if you're speculating in a market on something like Augur and, you know, the price of Ether drops by 30% overnight, that's something that's very bad and you don't want to happen because you could even be right about what you're trading on or what you're betting on and still lose money due to that. So stablecoins are an attempt to solve that problem. There's a few different approaches to how to do it. There's um, 
you know, ones where you back them by collateral to projects like Maker. Those so far have empirically worked. And I think there's a pretty good chance that they do work. Um, the big caveat with them, though, is that, it, you know, the amount of capital you can deploy in a solution like that is limited by how much capital you can get to back it. The next kind of category is things where they're not backed by anything and they basically kind of auction off bonds, things like Basecoin. And those are kind of more kind of shelling point based. So the idea is just kind of if you can get people to believe it's worth a dollar, <laughs> they'll kind of continue to, to make it so through some simple financial incentives. I think that has a lower chance of working than a maker. But if it does work, it's it's much simpler. Third approach is kind of uh, combining elements from both of those. And then, uh, you know, more recently, I thought a lot more about a fourth approach, which is basically saying that it's impossible to kind of get an actually stable asset, right? Because if you look at, you know, the history of any asset that's ever existed, no asset ever has zero volatility. Um, you can look at the, the dollar over the past year until recently when it strengthened again. The dollar lost about 15% against the basket of goods. And that's the best currency in existence. So the last kind of you know idea of a stablecoin I thought a bit about is actually ditching the idea of a stablecoin and just saying, why don't we just try to create, you know, as a community, create a currency that's actually low volatile, low volatility, and actually has its own monetary supply, uh, monetary policy. So if you look at something like Bitcoin, the monetary policy is very, um, very kind of jagged in the sense that it, it prints a certain amount. And it drops it by half, and it drops it by half again, and it does this every four years. And I think it'd be really interesting if you had a cryptocurrency where the monetary policy was decided on uh, dynamically by the users, and you could create something that's kind of much more like a real-world currency. Um, I think that'd be really, really interesting. Yeah, Augur has there's a lot of risks associated to to a product like Augur. Obviously, you know, platform risk, regulatory risk, you know, risk of Oracle system breaking. What what are you doing to to try to mitigate these risks? Um. Sure. Um, so, you know, on the, on the regulatory side, um, you know, we, we've taken the position that we're not going to create markets or operate anything on Augur. We're not going to, you know, even, not going to even run the, the Augur UI or host it for anyone. Um, so it's very similar to BitTorrent in the sense that you kind of have to, you know, get it and, and run it on your own machine. Um, and just confirming here, does, does the team have the ability to shut down an Augur contract? No, we don't. Um, and so on the regulatory side, I think the, the bigger question marks really start to appear when you do start to put yourself into the role of creating markets. Um, you know, we're, we don't plan to do that. If I were going to do it though, you know, I think the, probably one of the better jurisdictions to do it is someplace in, in the EU, you know, maybe somewhere like Malta or, or I guess no longer the EU, uh, the UK, which has, you know, pretty, pretty favorable kind of online betting laws. But, you know, that's not something we're planning to do ourselves. The kind of next two things you brought up are in the risk of, of building a decentralized Oracle system, which I think is, you know, really complicated undertaking. It's, it's basically kind of a new consensus mechanism. Most computer science consensus mechanisms are for, uh, consensus on, you know, events that take place in computers. Oracle systems are for consensus on real world events. And it's an idea that hasn't really been tested in real life. Theoretically on paper, it looks secure. Uh, but you never really know how a system's going to work until you see it in the wild. And so that one, we've had everything audited a bunch, had people review it, you know, talk to a bunch of economists and academics. But, you know, the real kind of proof is in the pudding when we, when we see it in production. And then the last piece is platform risk. And I think, you know, the biggest risk on the platform side uh, is really just, you know, the, the scalability issues and how long it takes to resolve those. I don't think there's any platform really that's farther ahead than Ethereum at this point, at least not, you know, none that I've seen publicly anyway. But I think that could change over the next couple of years. 
uh, really just depends on how things like sharding in, in plasma evolve over time. And what is the state of, of scalability today and what solutions are you, post solutions are you most excited about? Yeah. So if you look at the kind of scalability challenges that we, we face today, you know, basically the, in a nutshell, the problem is these networks really only do 10 or so transactions per second. And there's a bunch of different proposed solutions for how to fix this. There's kind of, they kind of fall into two buckets, in my opinion, and then kind of three sub buckets from there. So the first two buckets are, say your Mac does 10,000 transactions per second on its own machine. Now, when you start to add a network into that, you really get kind of like, you know, 10,000 divided by number of nodes, roughly speaking, transactions per second. So if there's, you know, 2,000 nodes and you have not very great optimization, maybe you're doing five transactions per second, which puts you pretty close to Bitcoin's mark. So that's so that's one problem is trying to figure out how do we get it so that if your individual computer can do 5,000 per second, why can't the entire network do that? And some approaches for doing that are things like Blocks Route, which try to solve things on the networking bandwidth side. There's also people trying to, you know, make it so that you separate uh, achieving consensus on events from uh, actually processing the individual transactions, which can cause you to have a throughput increase. And there's a, you know, there's a dozen other different approaches, things like doing transactions off-chain and then settling on-chain once in a while. Things like Lightning Network are approaches in that angle. And then the, the kind of next uh, sort of method of scaling is trying to figure out if your computer can do 5,000 per second, why don't we get the network to be able to do 5,000 times the number of nodes in the network? And that's kind of your theoretical maximum possible scalability that you could ever get in, in any solution. And there's a few different approaches of how to get there. One is sharding, where you split the network into a bunch of different, you know, different shards, and each individual shard processes some of the transactions, but no one processes all of the transactions. And then another scalability technique is to use these things called uh, zero-knowledge proofs, where you can basically prove that you process a bunch of transactions in an honest, accurate way, and the network can just verify your proof. And it's very, very simple and easy to verify your proof, but it takes a good amount of time to produce it. And so it basically takes, um, you know, to kind of, if you look at these networks today, the problem is everyone running an Ethereum node has to process every transaction. If instead of that, they could just verify a signature that proved that, verify a proof that proved that someone ran the transactions in an honest way, you'd have, you know, much higher scalability numbers than you have today. Those are kind of the main different approaches. I think they're all anywhere from six months on the short end to, you know, three to four years off on the on the long end. As you think about Augur, what's the solution space for, you know, making design choices, including which protocol to build on such that Augur can, like, operate at the level that you think it requires? Yeah, so I think um, the, the way I think about it is I think it, that of, of the sort of kind of smart contract-based platforms, I think something that uses either the Ethereum virtual machine or WebAssembly or something where you can compile Solidity down to one of those things is going to win. Everybody loves to, you know, hate on Solidity at this point, but um, it actually has quite a few features that are needed uh, for writing secure smart contracts. I actually, I actually like the language quite a bit at this point. The problem is it's just hard to write secure smart contracts, but it does have a lot of features that make it easier. Um, for instance, in Solidity, you can write an assertion, you can write, you know, assert that this contract always has the amount of money that it thinks it has. And then Solidity has this feature where we'll try to prove that wrong. And then it will give you a line in your code if that ever, you know, were to be wrong and show you why it would be wrong. There's a lot of interesting features you can do that other languages don't have. 
So I think um, I think you know something like that is likely to win. The question is, will it be Ethereum that's running that, or will it be will it be something else? And right now, Ethereum's you know by far the farthest ahead on the research side um, and also on the implementation side. There's a few different teams working on Plasma. There's one or two working on sharding. And so when we're looking at you know what to build on right now, we're on Ethereum, and the only thing that would really change that. Is if somebody came out with something that was, you know, much more scalable. So if you were to manage it more scalable without some severe security trade-off. And so if you look at, you know, something that's got a bunch of hype recently like EOS, you know, the problems with that are twofold. One is it forces you to write smart contracts in like C, I think, uh, which is not great language to be writing smart contracts in, in my opinion. And then two, it does make a huge security uh slash decentralization trade-off. And the ideal platform would be able to do things without making a bunch of trade-offs. A lot of the discourse has reduced to decentralization as a term, like lack of decentralization, which is way more complex than just simple decentralization. There are tons of different aspects that you can trade off when you design a protocol. Is decentralization kind of the main thing that you're worried about? Or are there other design choices that are, you know, or or maybe like, maybe the way to phrase it is, like, what is the minimum set of requirements for a protocol in your for something like Augur? And w- w- which properties are the most important? Which properties maybe are talked about but aren't important? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, in, in any of these sorts of protocols, you basically have three main properties that everybody talks about. And those properties are one is privacy. One is kind of throughput or scalability. And then, um, you know, three is actually throughput and scalability is slightly different. Get to that in a moment. And then the third one is, you know, decentralization. Decentralization is important uh, in the sense that you need it to be decentralized enough, in my opinion, so that no one entity or, or, or group could attempt to shut one of these networks down, whether because they want to censor it or because they don't like it or, or any sort of reason like that. So that that's kind of a, an arbitrary thing. It depends for each individual person what, what they think that threshold is. For me, I think the threshold, you know, 21 nodes on EOS is not decentralized enough. I think, you know, the number of nodes that Bitcoin has is, you know, definitely enough. It's, you know, you could argue it's too much. There's probably some happy medium in there that's just right. But I feel, you know, comfortable saying for myself anyway that 21 is, is not enough. On the privacy side of things, that's something that you don't care about until uh, you realize it's gone or until something kind of dystopic happens. And we saw this recently with a bunch of people suddenly realized uh, Facebook's business model after a decade for some reason. And, uh, you know, I think we'll see similar things in the blockchain space. But right now, nobody really cares about privacy. But eventually, once people realize that anyone can track your transactions, then they'll eventually care about it. But in the short to midterm, that, that's one that I think you can kind of punch, punch the ball on for a while until scalable solutions for privacy tech uh, work in production. And then the last one is, is scalability and throughput. And everyone talks about uh, scalability. And there's kind of two dimensions to it. So one is... How many transactions per second can the entire network do? And then the other is like, how many transactions per second can a given part of the network do? And for Augur, the second one of those is very important. And the reason is, say, imagine you had a network that had a thousand shards and each shard could do 10 transactions per second. And on paper, you could say that that network does 10,000 transactions per second. Sounds pretty good. Imagine, however, that I don't think this is true, by the way, but for sake of argument, Imagine that Augur or insert DAP X required, as a requirement, it had to run on its own shard. It couldn't do cross-shard transactions. 
And in that scenario, the throughput is actually only 10 transactions per second. So while you have high throughput on paper, in practice, you don't actually have it high enough for an individual DAP to, to succeed. Now, I think for stuff like Augur, the answer to how you solve that is, well, you just put each individual market on its own shard in your problem solve. But I think that's one thing that people aren't really considering in this space very much is the difference between scalability for an entire network versus scalability for an individual application running on it. It may not be able to run uh, across multiple shards or something like something like that. Right. And and security is probably another property that's just implied that it needs to be a certain level of security, right? Or, or are you thinking about that differently? No, I think that's right. Like um, that's kind of, you know, table stakes in, this, in, this set, in the sense that you need that as table stakes and then those other three properties, you can kind of mix them and match them and trade off of them based on your, your preferences. But yeah, security is definitely the most important one um, in the sense that, you know, you want, you want your network to be secure in the sense that people don't have economic incentive to try to attack it or steal from it. Every network is always going to be vulnerable to the attack that if someone's willing to throw, you know, a ton of money at it, they can attack it. But the sort of property with security that you want is you just want to be sure that they at least don't have additional economic incentive to do that. Zooming out a bit, you're also the CIO, uh, Chief Investment Officer at Pantera Capital. Can you talk a little bit about your investment thesis and focus right now and how that's evolved over over time while you've been there? Sure. Yeah, so we basically look at you know, the thesis is really, um, you know, if you look at this tech, I think it's good for two things, at least over the next five to 10 years, then maybe the, the kind of space for things you can use it for will expand. But right now, I think it's good for creating new markets where they don't where they don't really exist today. So an example of this is something like Filecoin, where you're creating a market for file storage, or Golem, where you're creating one for compute, where today, if you want to store files somewhere, you're basically forced to kind of go to a handful of providers. It's not really a free market in the sense that there's no order book for file storage where you can buy and sell. So I think that's one aspect. And the other aspect is things that are disintermediation plays where they're taking some, you know, current incumbent or middleman, middleman who charges a bunch in fees and decreasing costs and kind of cutting them out. And then kind of the third thing, I guess, is things that support both of those two kind of use cases. And so that sounds a bit abstract, but uh, I think I think most of the things in the space that we see that we think are interesting kind of fit into into one of those categories. So whether it's an exchange that helps you get access to crypto, which then enables you to use it in those sorts of applications, or whether it's something you know that is actually an application like that, or you know the kind of third type of thing is something that's more kind of on the infrastructure side. And there, what we really look for are projects that have ways to kind of address some of those problems we just discussed a couple minutes ago but without making some severe compromise. Because if you make a big compromise on it, like if you have high scalability, but you ditch you know, security or you ditch decentralization, you haven't really made some huge innovation. You just kind of toggled a couple switches and made something slightly different, but you didn't really innovate or solve some new problem. And so for us, when we look at projects like that, we're looking for kind of true technological innovations where you do something without some severe trade-off. And I think those are the sorts of things that actually move the space forward. And so that's, that's the sort of stuff we're interested in. What are some spaces that you think, uh, subdomains that you think are either underexplored or overhyped? Yeah. So on the overhyped side, you know, I would definitely say, let's see. So, okay. One of them is I think like token curated registries. We, we did invest in one that I really actually do like, but I think it's a space, a space that in general has kind of been overhyped quite a bit recently. And, you know, the, the reason is I think it's really hard to achieve consensus on stuff that's fairly subjective. Um, you know, we were talking, you know, 20 minutes ago about how 
you know, a big risk, risk to Augur is whether Oracle systems work, right? And those are achieving consensus on things that are objective. Uh, so take it a step farther and try to achieve consensus on very subjective things when we're not even sure that it works on objective things is, is kind of a bit aggressive, I think. And then the, the other area that I think is kind of overhyped right now is kind of the, the digital art space. There's, you know, I, I've seen a dozen projects in that space and I think it's very early. It's hard to know how large the market is. Like it's, it's something that like you, you feel like there could be a Black Mirror episode about it and like it, it could be a humongous market, but it could be like five years from now or it could be 25 years from now. And it's really hard for me to, to kind of tell on that one. So I think that's a bit overhyped. On the underappreciated side, I, I think, you know, projects with just, I think in the space right now, it's really hard for the average investor to be able to determine whether something has legitimate tech or not. And so I would say projects with actually good tech are underappreciated right now because of the fact that you see these projects with terrible tech raising, you know, a hundred plus million dollars. And it's because the investors didn't know how to do due diligence it. So I think that that's, that's something that's a bit underappreciated. And the one reason why I think the tech is really important in this, in this space, uh, even more so than regular startups in, in the tech industry is because here, if you get it wrong, it's like a, it's like your rocket blows up. It's not like, you know, on Snapchat where worst case scenario, someone, you know, loses a photo or one of your photos gets leaked. Here, it's people lose money. They can lose, you know, millions of dollars. So I guess that's another thing that's important is security, uh, which is very underappreciated in the space as well. You know, people try to cheap out on security audits and, and go with firms that aren't as good. And I can say for Augur, for instance, we had about seven or eight firms audit our code base. And in reality, actually, only one one firm was the best by far. And that one firm found every vulnerability that all the other seven firms found. That firm, by the way, was Zeppelin. Uh, so they're, they're who I recommend for audits because they're, they're really good. So I think like, you know, people underappreciate that sort of stuff, those sort of small things that, that really make a difference. On, on the, the like real tech side and, and kind of calling back to the protocols discussion that we had a few moments ago, do you feel like there are like each of the interesting areas for technical innovation at the infrastructure level are occupied or at least like have credible teams working in each of those areas? Or do you think there are still complete, you know, completely either under explored or like untapped areas of innovation that could move protocol development forward? Yeah. So, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I used to always say stable coins, but now I've seen like 50 of those. So I think there's enough research going into that, that area. On, on the protocol side, I think, you know, the part that's really underexplored is the second part of that equation where I talked about how, you know, trying to get it so that if your machine does 5,000 transactions per second, just running a local blockchain, can we get it so that the entire network runs 5,000 times in, or at least some fraction of 5,000 times in, where n is the number of nodes? And there are credible teams working on that problem. There's some of the brightest in the space. You know, there's Starkware on the Stark side. There's um, Coda on the ZK Snark side. And then, you know, Ethereum uh, on the sharding side of things. But it's really only a handful. And then the rest of the players in that space kind of really aren't as credible. There's a handful of other ones that are good, but it's very underexplored relative to the first kind of technique of scaling, which is trying to just get it so the entire network can run roughly as many transactions as your individual machine. And yeah, so if you're looking for like kind of an exponential leap on, on scalability, I think that's an area we should put more R&D into. Uh, that's really, is there, a, is there a term to describe that, that topic area? I guess the way to, to describe it, you know, I, I don't know if anything actually comes up if you, if you Google this or not, 
but like uh quadratic scaling would be kind of the term right because you're you're scaling kind of like basically it's like a quadratic function as opposed to just linear but nothing seems to come up when i google that all right interesting is there something that you thought you know a couple of years ago you really expected to to become bigger mainstream or, or pan out that just ha- hasn't worked out yeah so i mean one of the one of the areas where i was definitely completely wrong was i thought you know a few years ago i thought that oh ethereum would get an easy you know roughly 10x increase in throughput um because i thought that they would make it so that transactions can be processed in parallel on your cpu right it's so like say you have a cpu with eight cores and you should be able to do eight times roughly the number of transactions you can do just by just processing them all in one core the reason that was wrong is the main bottleneck in the blockchain space for scalability isn't your processor. For the most part, it's not even your your um, hard drive or SSD. It's really your network bandwidth. And so one area I, I just kind of completely was completely wrong and didn't really kind of get where the scalability problem lied was on that angle. And so I thought I thought we'd have be doing more transactions per second per net right now, uh, but really kind of underestimated how hard it is to solve networking problems of scalability. And then so kind of a, a corollary to that is, you know, you look at people talking about the scaling problem, they say, well, Moore's Law could solve it. Moore's Law won't solve it because it's actually bounded by networking bandwidth, which actually doesn't increase at the rate of Moore's Law. If you look past like the past five years in the US, the average internet speed hasn't really increased that much. And so we kind of really need more technical breakthroughs there. And that That's one one spot. I just completely got it, got it wrong. You actually went to, to Twitter recently and you, you talked about how, you know, projects are raising at, at a certain valuation and then, you know, raising at 50x that valuation and claiming that the project is worth 50x more, but don't have that much more than when they initially raised. Why is this, besides sort of the obvious, wh- why is this such a problem? And what do you think is a better alternative? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I mean, I think the reason it's a problem is just, it means one of two things. If you see a project raise, you know, at like a, $10 million valuation, and then three months later, it raises at a $400 million valuation. That either means that A, the, the first round was woefully underpriced, or B, it means the second round is you know extremely overpriced. And the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. It's probably both of those. And it's, it's just really a, a kind of annoying thing for a few reasons. One is it's, it's really kind of gets against the ethos of the space, which was kind of more democratizing access to capital. Instead of kind of, you know, having a small round for a bunch of elite investors and then raising another round at a huge valuation. And I'm trying to think of the word. It's kind of fighting against myself to say this because I would be someone who would actually benefit from this sort of behavior, right? Because uh, I could get into these rounds. I think it's just a bad thing for the ecosystem overall. I'd much rather invest in a project at some valuation anywhere in the middle between those two and uh, or somewhere in the middle rather and have it be a fair valuation that I feel good about. Uh, as opposed to, you know, investing a smaller amount at a very tiny one and then having them raise, you know, at a huge valuation later on a few months later. And a couple of reasons for why that's actually bad is one is it takes advantage of other investors. So it takes advantage of kind of uneducated investors. And I think, uh, if you look at, you know, where the capital is coming for a lot of these projects in the early round, you know, it's coming from Silicon Valley. The later stage rounds, it's coming from Asia. We're just kind of blindly following on. A lot of times not even knowing what price they're getting in that. And it's, it's kind of just all this sort of stuff. It's, it's, you know, bad for capital formation. I think I said this uh, maybe a few more months back, the, the kind of big irony of, you know, kind of the, the SEC's guidance towards kind of directing projects in the way of doing sort of reg D offerings to only accredited investors is it's actually made the market less efficient, in my opinion. 
if you look at the virtue poker sale, which happened in May, you know, they raised about $15 million. It was a reasonable valuation. No disclosure, we bought some of that. And uh, I think it's a, it is a great thing to happen. And if you look at what's happening in the private markets, they're, you know, 10, 20, 30 X higher than that, that much more money, that much higher of a valuation. And it kind of just makes you question like, hmm, like it's too bad that this stuff isn't just happening in public markets like it used to because the public markets actually got smart to some degree. Tron's still in the top like 15. So there's still quite a bit of inefficiency. But I think sort of sort of dynamic we see where you raise it a low valuation, then raise it a super high one a few months later is very unhealthy because eventually those investors are going to lose a ton of money over it. Can you, can you shed some light on why this is happening in the first place? It seems like the kind of early the, the folks that have access to early rounds would have incentive to keep it very low and then also facilitate the large raise. Is that what you're seeing or is it something else that's leading to this uh, dynamic that seems pretty widespread? Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think what's led to it is you see, you know, you see projects that raise money from, from an investor with a brand name. And then, you know, that investor wants to get in at relatively good terms. And then the project gets hot, it gets popular and the project realizes it can raise at a much higher valuation. So does the investor. And then what happens is the investor usually doesn't follow on to the subsequent round. And then, um, so they don't follow on. And then usually, you know, some overseas investor or someone who doesn't really know the space very well takes a large portion of the round. An example of this on a much larger scale was, you know, Telegram. They raised their first few rounds at still crazy valuations, but they were smaller and then kept ratcheting it up as, as demand increased. And I think, you know, somebody responded to me and said, well, it's just the, you know, free market at work, but it's not quite the free market because it's not actually like an open order book where you're buying and selling this stuff. Uh, it's more kind of all behind closed doors and, you know, relationship based. And, you know, most projects aren't disclosing to investors that they raised, you know, the last round at a $20 million valuation, the next one at 200. And well, how do I know that? I know that because projects have not disclosed that to me and I found out about it. So I think it's it's just kind of, you know, it's it's bad behavior all around. I think fast forward six months, it won't be happening at all, in my opinion. Right. And why, why do you why do you think that? So the reason I think it, the reason I'm pretty confident it won't be happening in six months is once these deals start to go live, the investors who bought in at a four hundred million dollar valuation, unless like the crypto bubble bubble like you know bubbles back up like it was in January, I don't think those deals are going to trade up. At least they're not going to trade up like five x or ten x like those investors are expecting. And so what's going to happen then is those investors are going to realize that it was a bad decision to invest in something at a four hundred million dollar valuation or five hundred million dollar valuation or whatever it was they invested in, and the next time they either won't do it or They'll ask, you know, is the person who invested in the first round following on, or they'll, you know, ask for a lower valuation. I think valuations will start to correct. And we saw this happen um, already on the seed stage side of things. So the, the first kind of rounds projects raised used to be a lot higher. Now they've kind of come down. The stuff in the middle's kind of come down. The last kind of thing on the tail end for the, where you see a huge influx of capital kind of from overseas investors hasn't really come down yet, but I think it will as the market kind of realizes that it's not, not a smart thing to do. You said that you believe we're more 1992 to 1995 dot com era than you know 9901, and we haven't seen the major bubble yet. Say more about why you think this is, what you think might cause the bubble, and my question, our question to you is: Does there have to be a bubble? Yeah. So great questions. So you know, of course, I've just read uh, about the dot com bubble in, in history books. I wasn't really paying much much attention to it when it happened. Since I was really young, but I think if you look at you know kind of what what happened during that time. The number of users we saw 
Uh, so some blog post somebody made about comparing number of users, you know, the internet had in the early nineties to the number of users blockchain tech has now. And they're kind of pretty closely, closely mapping. It's not like it was in the late nineties where you saw a huge increase in flux in users. The other reason is I think, I, I think we're kind of in a consolidation period or consolidation range in the market right now. And if you look at the NASDAQ from 92 to 95, I think it was up maybe like 30% over those two years. Then after that, it, you know, it went wild and, and went up to the, you know, 99, 2000 peaks. And I think we just haven't really seen that yet in the crypto market for a few reasons. One is institutional investors are not really in, in earnest yet. There's some kind of mainly offices, people like that, but larger institutions aren't really into the space yet. They're waiting on custody. They're waiting on the space to mature a bit. And then two, hey, I do think kind of the next bubble will happen when the tech catches up to the prices we saw uh, this year. So that means a couple of years once, once scalability and throughput starts to improve. And then the question on, you know, does it have to be a bubble? You know, does, something doesn't have to be, but I think if you look at the kind of history of most new inventions, there's typically a, a financial bubble associated with them. I think my opinion, part of the reason is it's just really hard to estimate when you've overshot something or, you know, or when you bought it at the right price. Uh, when it's a very new piece of, piece of technology, which is why you see kind of things uh, have ebbs and flows as opposed to, you know, the price is just kind of staying constant and modifying itself a small amount, you know, as, as time goes on. Typically, you see things might be much more volatile. The tech itself is volatile, right? Like, you know, we're talking about all this scalability stuff. Somebody could come out with a huge breakthrough tomorrow, or it could take, you know, four and a half years instead of the two or three that we talked about. And so that's another reason why we see kind of huge bubbles and corrections is the tech itself is pretty stochastic and, and hard to predict, uh, which makes makes the market very similar. Yeah. And I think with some people compare it to the web, they say, well, at least, you know, in 1999 or dot com rather, at least in 99, there were use cases for the web. But, you know, there was this, this medium post that went around by CEO of TrueLink, I believe his name is Kai. And he was saying how, you know, we've been talking about payments, micropayments, smart contracts, but 10 years in, there doesn't seem to be much, if any, real use cases or applications of current blockchain technology. How would you, or cryptocurrency, how, how would you respond back to that, that critique? What are the current use cases or applications that are, that are very real today, not just in the future? Yeah. So the ones today, I mean, they definitely exist in my opinion. They're, they're kind of boring. You know, you have digital gold uh, for Bitcoin. It's a lot easier to transport Bitcoin across borders than a, you know, bunch of gold, gold bars, much harder to have it seized as well. If you're traveling from you know one place to another, I don't, I don't think that's super exciting, but it is a it is a real use case. And then I think if you look at the internet in the early '90s, there weren't that many use cases either. You know, people even made fun of email in the beginning, and that's something that most people use every day today. You know, some people use it for multiple hours a day. Uh, I think that's kind of a, not as great of a thing, but you know, it's, it's something that people use in their daily lives a lot. And when it first came out. Everyone, or not everyone, but a lot of the media made fun of it and said, "There's, you know, it's a use, it's wasteful. Uh, why would you use that? You just use a fax machine." And so, and so, I think we saw these sorts of similar kind of complaints uh, with the early internet. And you know, the, the early internet took a really long time to build. Uh, you know, in the, in the history books, it's it's easy to just think, "Oh, you know, it was '90s and dot com boom, and then you know, kind of the rest of it got built over the next decade." But really, before the '90s, there was you know tons of work on it in the '70s and '80s. Uh, before it was even called the internet. And so when I think of the crypto space, I kind of think of all the sort of work on Bitcoin You can kind of think of it in, in this sort of analogy. It's not perfect, but you can kind of think of it as like the ARPANET. And then, you know, when Ethereum came out, we kind of had the internet 
of finance in the sense that you can kind of create your own websites and your own contracts and things like that. And so if you look at it from that angle, it's still really early. Like Ethereum came out a few years ago, 2015, three years later now, we've seen a few toy use cases and, you know, hopefully we'll see some more, especially with, with, you know, Augur's launch on, on July 9th. I think it'll take, you know, time for these sorts of things people view as toys to then become into, into real tools. And that's when you have, you know, something really, really cool on your hands. Yeah, there was this article also that came out that was saying, it said, move over crypto enthusiasts, Wall Street will take it over from here. And basically saying how the killer app is, is trading. In 2008, the narrative was, you know, Bitcoin's the future of money. In 2014, it was decentralized applications will take over the world. You know, in 2018, it's clear that sort of, you know, regulated and centralized trading, according to this post, is, uh, is going to be the biggest use case. And that's where, you know, Wall Street really has the domain expertise to take advantage of, of crypto. How would you respond to that? Well, I agree with part of it. Trading and, and, and finance are the biggest use cases, in my opinion. And I've, I've kind of held that opinion since 2011, so it's not something I've wafered on. But I think it's it's more uh, decentralized finance and decentralized trading as opposed to trading through you know regular centralized entities and centralized services. And the reason is I just don't think that you know right now you can make the argument that oh it's it's cheaper to trade on you know New York Stock Exchange than it is to trade on something like Augur. And that's true for now. And if you look at kind of, if you look out on the exponential curve as this tech scales, it's not going to be true in five years from now, in my opinion. And so one, once that sort of stuff happens, I think, uh, you know, trading definitely is where a lot of this tech is going to be used, but it's primarily as, as, uh, decentralized trading apps as opposed to centralized ones. In uh, in my opinion, there's a lot of debate right now about, or, you know, exploration around where value will accrue for tokens. Can you sort of describe the debate as, as you see it? And what your stance is in terms of value accrual? Yeah, so I mean, there's this bunch of people who talk about, you know, whether value will accrue to applications, whether it will accrue to protocols, or whether it will accrue to, you know, dApps or decentralized dApps on top of the protocols. And I think the way I think about it is value, in my opinion, will almost definitely accrue to the stuff that people are willing to pay for. So that's things like, you know, paying for an Ethereum transaction or a Bitcoin transaction. It's not going to work if you can't, if you don't have compensation for it. Um, another example of this is, you know, paying for uh, the reporting system in Augur. Your markets aren't going to get resolved accurately unless you pay for it. So it's kind of a, you're paying for security. And when you're paying for security, you kind of have to pay for it. Otherwise, you can't really use whatever you're trying to use. So I think those sorts of tokens will accrue value. The next kind of category of things is, um, you know, whether decentralized steps on top that happen to have a token will, will accrue value. In there, I think it really depends on, you know, how, how needed the token is. And then also a lot of it depends on, you know, consumer psychology. So I think, you know, you take two examples, say someone created a decentralized poker app that charged a, you know, 5% rate and it paid it out to token holders. I think if you fast forward a few years from now, someone will take that app, remove the unnecessary fee and release a free version because of the people who are taking that fee are really just rent seekers. They're not actually adding any value for the fee that they take. However, if you made a decentralized poker app, where you created your own currency and you had to use that to bet, theoretically people might remove it and replace it with like Ether or a stable coin, but they also might not. It's kind of a, a consumer psychology. And so value might agree there or it might not. That that I'm kind of less sure on. But I think on the two kind of poles or two extremes, for things where you kind of really do need the token, otherwise the system doesn't function, I'm confident value will accrue there. And then I'm also confident value won't accrue to stuff where it's just kind of pure rent seeking and the token's really not needed at all. The kind of interesting gray area is the, the space in the middle. 
And then the last kind of piece people talk about on valuation or where value will accrue is that whether it will accrue at all to the application layer. And for there, it depends on kind of what the application does. If it's something like Coinbase that interfaces with the real world and, you know, gets your fiat in, value is going to accrue there. If it's, you know, a wallet app that's completely open source and, you know, probably not as much value is going to accrue there. You might be able to like sell the data or something. I can see business models like that working here. Uh, but again, the people in crypto aren't, aren't very keen on their data being sold. So I think, I think sort of things like that, where it's just kind of open source UIs, value is much less likely to actually accrue there. The folks that are most skeptical about value accruing to either smart contract protocols or the application layer tend to be Bitcoiners or like fat money kind of people. Their, and their, their beliefs seem to be focused around money being the very most important use case for crypto, or at least the largest, that money is winner takes all. And that that Bitcoin or something like it has the best properties for winning the money use case. Just based on how you've talked about the space and, and what you do in the space, I, I'm assuming that you don't necessarily agree with that. What parts don't you agree with and and why? There's a few different things, to, a few different you know angles to that. One is, you know, you could, you could imagine it's, it's saying that, you know, kind of Bitcoin is like the money use case. So why not just invest in Bitcoin as, as a Bitcoin maximalist? It's kind of like saying, well, you could invest in the stock market and buy equities that, you know, actually have cash flows and, and do stuff. Or you could just put all your money in gold and invest in gold. And gold is the winning store of value. So you should just buy gold. And so I think the, the rebuttal to that on the, on the DAP side or the smart contract side or things like Ethereum are, you know, right now they're not seeing a ton of usage. I'd be the first one to admit that. I think a lot of that's due to lack of a stable coin, lack of scalability and attack just being new. But if you do fundamentally believe there will be a lot of usage, I think value will accrue there, just like value accrues to companies that actually do things. And then on the on the money thing, um, I do actually disagree with people who say that Bitcoin is most likely to win money because I don't think Bitcoin is very good money. Uh, I think it's has a really strong chance of winning store of value, but I think store of value and money are two very two very very different things. You know, early on these to be coupled, right? You would pay for things with gold and silver, and then you'd pay for things with gold backed dollars. But nowadays, money and store of value are, are pretty pretty decoupled. I think the main kind of thing that differentiates them, in my opinion is a store of value is something that you, you know, expect not to lose money against inflation with in the long run, say, think decades. And then something that's money, you expect not to have some huge uh, amount of volatility associated with it. And uh, even assets like gold are too volatile to be used as money these days. And I think Bitcoin will, will fall in a kind of similar category. So I'm bullish on Bitcoin. I just think it's more kind of a store of value as opposed to, to money. I, I saw one tweet recently basically saying that uh, something along the lines of it's hard to imagine the future of money giving you know, 10% of it being owned by Polychain or Pantera or, or, or something of the sort. And I'd say that it's just sort of as a, as a segue to the broader question, which is what's sort of the state of the crypto crypto fund, native fund, whether it's hedge funds or venture fund landscape, and are the best funds already existing or will they be created? How do you think about that? Yeah, so I think what well, I do, I do think it's, a good sentiment that, you know, I, I hope that whatever does become the new money isn't like 10% of it's not owned by like one entity. That would be kind of, you know, depressing. Cause even today's financial system, even though it's very, it's very skewed and falls power law, it's not, it's not that it's pretty skewed, but it's not that skewed. You know, I think, uh, as far as, you know, the funds, fund space, I think the thing that we haven't really seen yet that I think still will come about and happen is 
you know, someone doing kind of a more quantitative strategy on something that's not high frequency, but it's also not like trading on, you know, the weekly to monthly scale. I think that would be something that's really interesting that we haven't really seen yet. Yeah. Are you guys doing stuff in, in that realm? We're doing some stuff in the quantitative space. You know, the, the stuff we have live right now, though, is trading more on like the monthly horizon opposed to, you know, trading a ton of different times per day. Do you think when we talk, you know, five years from now about some of the, you know, or five, 10 years from now, best, best investors in the space, that they will be ones that have not yet been created? I think on the venture and, you know, kind of token discretionary side, I think, you know, maybe, maybe 25% of them will be ones that have, that are already existing within the remaining 75 or maybe 33, 66, something like that. But the majority will be new ones. And then on the, you know, quantitative side, I think it'll be like, you know, 95% new ones. Yeah. Makes sense. Let's talk about ICOs for, for, for a second. They've been, you know, under fire. Recently, uh, you guys, you, you guys were one of the earlier ones, but you, you've talked about how you long term are, are quite bullish on, on ICOs. S- say more about why. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, well, like, like anything else, it's something where it definitely falls an extreme power law in the sense that, you know, 99% of, of ICOs or even higher are really low quality, not, not good deals and things that, you know, you should pass on. If you look at seed stage venture deals, it's maybe 95%. Are things that you should pass on, or, or not even really dig into a whole lot farther. But I think uh, it's something that I think that you know fraction of a percent or whatever is going to create uh, an enormous amount of value uh, over the next you know decade. And I think it's just because you know it's, it's kind of like a different type of structure. You know, you have equity in companies, and what equity does is it, it just kind of distributes profits to shareholders. You have nonprofits, and then you also have, you know, sort of kind of utility tokens. And I think there's not really that many utility tokens. Like I think it's, you know, the amount that actually truly exists is more like, you know, 10 to 20 as opposed to like thousands. And those are kind of this weird, interesting thing in between where it's like this peer-to-peer kind of cooperatively owned decentralized venture. And it does something really interesting. And I think that's just going to be something that's, that's bigger than it is today in the future. Yeah, perhaps... Zooming out a little bit, what do you think is a misconception that a key misconception that like consumers have around blockchain that technologists have around blockchain and that media has around blockchain? A lot sort of a lot of noise in the space, but what do you think are sort of one thing that those three groups get wrong? Yeah. And I think the biggest thing people in the space or people, yeah, people in and outside of the space don't understand is, um, or they don't think about it much as much as they should is that you're interfacing through all this stuff. With you know centralized web-based UIs that run on a server somewhere, it really defeats a lot of the purpose of the tech. And those sites can be shut down. They can be man-in-the-middle attacked. They can even you know just be straight up hacked and have their source code replaced with something that's malicious. And so if you're accessing this stuff through through kind of centralized services and centralized websites, a lot of the benefits of it kind of go away. So that's that's one thing. Uh, I think there's ways to get UI UX that is amazing that is still through a browser that doesn't involve a central server using things like IPFS. Lastly, let's talk about Augur again. You know, what is, what is something that someone who doesn't know anything about Bitcoin, perhaps, you know, one of my friends in Detroit, where I just was, what's something that they can expect to use Augur for next week that they should be excited about? And how can they participate if they want to? Yeah, so the way you participate basically is, so in the beginning, unfortunately, you're going to need some Ether. So 
you know, go to a site like Coinbase or something like that, you know, buy buy a small amount of Ether. And then you basically download the Augur UI, you click on it, it runs on your machine, and you can then basically deposit your Ether into it. And then you can really do kind of, you know, basically whatever you want. And the sort of things you can do in it are, if you, say, if you send the Ether in anyway, you can create a new market. So like, say you wanted to make a market on, you know, some local event, uh, you could do that. Or you could trade in an existing market. And so if there's anything on there, uh, and honestly, I have no idea what's going to be on, on there on day one. It really depends on what, what the kind of community creates. But you could you know trade in any of those sorts of markets. Excellent. And they can, if they want to get more into it, they can you know, follow you guys on, on Twitter and, and join your Slack? Yeah, so there's a, there's a Discord group that people can join. And there's also you know, a subreddit, Stack Overflow, kind of all, of all that sort of stuff to this, discuss Augur with people. The launch is July 9th. Joey, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me.